Go beyond the headlines and deepen your understanding of the forces shaping our world today on The Political Scene, a newly updated podcast from The New Yorker. With episodes three times each week, The Political Scene accesses the sharpest minds on politics, offering insight and analysis about everything from abortion rights to the war in Ukraine. Join me, Tyler Foggett, for conversations with the most knowledgeable minds from The New Yorker that will dive deep on the most interesting political story of the week. Then, Susan Glasser, Jane Mayer, and Evan Osnos gather to hash out what's happening in Washington, D.C., with an insider's understanding of the high stakes at this perilous moment for American democracy. Plus, our editor David Remnick will provide you with insightful storytelling with a mix of interviews and profiles. That's all happening on the political scene. Make sure you're following it now, wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jason Kander. And I'm Ravi Gupta. And this is Majority 54, the podcast for meaningful conversations that change minds, change votes, and win elections. Ravi, how you doing? I'm good, man. I went to Nashville, Tennessee this weekend. I hadn't been there since the beginning of the pandemic. And wow, that city has changed. Like, it's what, what took you there? I was down there for a number of different reasons, but I have a good friend who is just the most wonderful person I know who's running for office, uh, potentially running for mayor down there. And as a general rule, given like arena and all that, I, j- I try not to actually get involved in campaigns on a one-off basis. But I break the rule for him because he's like the super, he's like just the kindest, coolest guy ever. So I just I went down there to talk to him, but and also just to catch up with people, catch up with my former students, catch up with people I used to work with, and you know a lot of Majority Fifty Four listeners down there. Uh, a lot of people mentioned in the podcast, which you know, that's cool. Me excited, yeah, yeah. We should do a show in Nashville, and maybe maybe we get a little music in it. Like that'd be yeah. cool. And but the city is like booming. It's and I was you know people don't like this description, but it's apt. Is that it's kind of like the fanciest parts of L.A. but without the ocean. It's just become so fancy and so expensive. And I would say of all the places I've been recently, it has the most stark issues with affordability and you know runaway growth. And it's like a big conversation down there. And so cool place. But it's facing some serious challenges. We should probably like dig out the pilot that we wrote about. Oh, you know what I was thinking about that while I was down there? I have so many ideas about it, Uh, especially given the current version of Nashville. There's just a lot there. And the politics are really fascinating because you have this super blue city with a very, very Republican legislature, which is basically usurping the powers of the city left and right. And it's creating a lot of tension. Yeah, for listeners, we wrote a a pilot about a lawyer slash legislator in Nashville who's basically an amalgam of me and Ravi. Yep, and uh, it's and it's pretty funny. I think I mean it's the only pilot I've ever written. You've written a few, but I thought it was pretty good. We should. I actually was thinking a lot about it while I was down there, and I was like, "Do I message Jason?" But I was like, "You know, I'm going to message him when I can actually spend the time to get this across the finish line." But I had a lot of ideas and thinking about it. But by and large, shout out to Nashville, great city. People down there are. Some of the coolest people I know. And yeah, it's, we should go down there. There's some fun stuff, man. My buddy opened up a music venue called The Underdog. <laughs> and it's like, it's kind of like a roadhouse vibe. It's like in the middle, like it doesn't have a whole lot around it. And it's like very dive bar-y, but with like incredible music and just really good vibes. Roadhouse yeah. vibe, like the double yeah. deuce. 
Yeah, yeah. Right. I didn't get in any fights, but right. you um, got to put a little music. blade on the bottom of your boot. That's the key. Uh, <laughs> all right, so we're gonna start talking trash. We have a twofer of talking trash because we had a plan for what we were gonna do in this talking trash segment, but then Madison Cawthorn was not victorious in his primary. So I think for those who listened before, we had a debate. Ravi and I we presented our arguments as to who had had the worst week, like three weeks ago, whether it was Kevin McCarthy or Madison Cawthorn. Edie, who we should bring back in here, who's producing this episode. Edie was the judge. Uh, Edie, you want to tell him how you ruled? Yeah, I mean, now in retrospect, I'm ashamed to say that I ruled in favor of Jason's argument, who was McCarthy, because at the time I thought he was just going to fade into obscurity and Cawthorn would be fine. But obviously, by the end of the week, even more scandals came out. Now Cawthorn lost his primary. So I feel like Ravi... I have I feel to vindicated. Uh, award you the debate winner. Feel vindicated. After the fact. And to be honest, like, it's not just that, I mean, first of all, the McCarthy stuff, like he seemed to weather it because if people probably don't even remember. He got a standing ovation later that week, too. Yeah. People don't even remember that what McCarthy, what it came out that McCarthy had called on Trump, claimed he was going to call on Trump to resign back after January 6th. And so it was like, oh, well, I guess he's done. But, you know, I guess not. But really, it's not just, I mean, because like, you know, I've lost an election. It's not just that Madison Cawthorn lost his his primary. It's it's that I mean, he just went down in a way where the entire Republican establishment just just unloaded both barrels over and over to just humiliate the guy. And so I think yep. it's, that's really it. I honestly think this is the best thing for him because now there are way less motivated people to unearth whatever the next Madison Madison Cawthorn story is. So he can he could be him. He can you know. He can carry or attempt to carry pistols through TSA checks and, um, you know, hire and fire whoever he wants. And all he'll deal with is the justice system, not the court of public opinion as much anymore. So I'm, I, for one, am glad we no longer have public figure Madison Cawthorn in our lives anymore. Although, you know, this is America. There are second acts. You never know. Well, and he doesn't have to run for office to be a public fair. I'm sure he's, I'm sure he's got a following that, you know, it'll, but I, I think it is important. And I can't remember who pointed this out, but it's important to echo them, which is to remind ourselves that Madison Cawthorn, who has been an extremist in a million different ways and who is really a threat to democracy in the way that he was a booster of January 6th. And, you know, all this, I mean, you talk about, we're going to talk about white replacement theory later. I'm sure he's a guy who's espoused that stuff. None of that has anything to do with why he lost his primary. He lost his primary because establishment Republicans were upset that he talked about sex. So they went out and they made voters in his district believe that there was a chance he might be gay. And so, like, let's not let's not miss that point. That's that's what really happened here. Yeah, I kind of missed that context a little bit because I had been focused on so many of his other indiscretions. Like, I've kind of sidestepped a lot of these like photos and things just because like you know, you have conflicting feelings about the way it's being talked about, right? It's like, yes, he's a hypocrite, but also the people who are weaponizing it can do real damage with the standard that they're setting, you mm-hmm. know? So, but we're, this is talking trash, so let's not be serious. Let's actually, <laughs> yeah, we're getting, we're getting too serious well, again. Well, I want to thank the many lovely listeners who decided to send emails and let me know that I was wrong three weeks ago when I <laughs> made my decision. I mean. They're like, like Madison Cawthorn. They're holding us accountable. Yeah, maybe I picked wrong on purpose so we get engagement. It was uh, was a clickbait through and through. That's what it was. 
And this other segment, Robbie. Well, we've got a we've got a real winner for talking trash this week. Uh, it's funny because you know a little behind the curtains, I usually send you a couple options uh, about what we could talk about, and you're like, no, 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 this one and the, <laughs> yeah, this yeah, one here. Firm. You're firm in it, and 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 the this one here is Jordan Peterson, who, if you don't know, is a public intellectual from Canada, who is really really popular, especially young among young men. And he's kind of a self-help guru slash pseudo-intellectual who, you know, has a lot to say about a kind of pull yourself up by your bootstraps sort of approach. I would say, like, not everything he says is crazy, but his public behavior sometimes is extremely questionable. Well, it is a controversial topic on a Toronto University campus this month. Now, the university wants staff to use alternate pronouns, but Jordan Peterson is a psychology professor at the university, and he is refusing to do that. The reason I'm defending freedom of speech is because that's how people get their opinions, settle their opinions in a civil society. Lobsters have hierarchies, okay? That's not a social construction. I'm against the Yes campaign, but only because it's backed by cultural Marxists. I'm curious to hear your views on gay marriage. Well, I would be against it too if it was backed by cultural Marxists. Here's a rule. Don't, don't How about you... no makeup in the workplace? What's the purpose of makeup? I don't know why. Why do you make on... your lips red? Because they turn red during sexual arousal. I've been on a pure carnivore diet for about two months. The postmodernists completely reject the structure of Western civilization. Sometimes I would say he doesn't live up to his own standards. And this week he he did something notable. He he was on Twitter, which is always a mistake in and of itself. But he quote tweeted an article about a SI swimsuit model and goes, sorry, not beautiful. And no amount of authoritarian tolerance is going to change that. Uh, and this is uh, Yumi Nu is her name. And she's, she's just not your conventional uber uber thin model of the of the old mold and i think that must have been what he was commenting on and uh he got a lot of heat for that people and i would say really really funny replies to him but then he then quit twitter in a huff basically saying people are being mean to me so so people started coming back at him right and then what he replies and says yeah, it's a conscious, progressive attempt to manipulate and retool the notion of beauty reliant on the idiot philosophy that such preferences are learned and properly changed by those who know better. Okay. Cite, and he cites some kind of article. Well, yeah. here's the first thing about that is like, like, let's go ahead and follow this train of, of crazy for a second. Because what what he's implying, or what he's saying, is that the the human mind, like particular, like the heterosexual male mind is somehow hardwired to find exactly the thing that has been accepted as conventional beauty for like, you know, regular swimsuit issue photo as that's what it is. Except that if you look back at like everything, I don't know, up till like 30, 40, 50 years ago, the shape of this woman is what the human mind apparently thought was beauty, right? Because right. If you look at every painting of nude women, you know, by every artist, like they, this is what they look like. Never mind. Like, why is there one standard? Like, like right. you be you, you know, Jordan Peterson, but like, why are you getting all huffy about like what 
then don't read the damn thing. Like, also, well, this is a, it's, it's a beautiful woman. Like, let's, like, yeah. let's be, like this, this is a I beautiful so. woman who's a plus size model. Like, I think so. But the way I think of this is like, it's like watching a movie. If I love a movie and somebody else doesn't, I don't get upset that they don't like the movie. It's just like, it's a, pr- it's a matter of preference. And it's silly to be like, oh, like to, to opine on Twitter especially when you're talking about people's appearances, which is like a really sensitive subject where like, you know, at Lost Debate, we have a rule. We don't even comment on people's appearances because it's something people usually don't have control over. Why do you feel like you have to force your sort of notion on other people, which is exactly what he's accusing other people of doing, right? Well, that's that's the real key here is that it's not just that he's, I mean, like it'd be one thing, he'd just be a jerk if he was like, sorry, right. this I don't believe this is beautiful. But what he's doing is he's he's saying... People are trying to force us to say this is beautiful. And he literally like he's acting like the like the government is right. Like publishing the swimsuit issue. Right. Uh, right. Like as if one cover in a sea of like very consistent models of beauty, you know, one cover with somebody who breaks from that mold is somehow going to, you know, lead to some kind of societal deterioration. Now, given that I'm not on a Lost Debate podcast, I can comment on Jordan Peterson's appearance, which I think as many a Twitter user pointed out, this is not a man who should be throwing stones in his very glass house, Jason. Yeah. Like, I, I mean, I'm, it's like, it's, we're yeah, talking gonna go trash. Here, Jason, so like, I kind of want yeah. to, but this, like, we are obligated these... in this segment to go there, Jason. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like he doesn't, he doesn't look like a guy who leaves his house. He's not Brad Pitt is all I'm saying. Look, I'm yeah. not Brad Pitt either. Which is no, why I don't I, go on and I, I don't set a standard I'm not going to live up to. Right. Like this man is not, one could argue he doesn't meet his own standard here. Well, I mean, yeah. that is the, the, of all, there were several tweets about his appearance, but the one that I, I do actually think was kind of funny and, and not totally unfair was the person who just took a photo of Jordan Peterson and then captioned it with the exact words that he had used, you know, and just said, sorry, not beautiful. And no amount of authoritarian tolerance is going to change that. Uh, That was pretty clever. But then my favorite actually was somebody posted a photo of, uh, of a little boy with his head on the ground and a boot and it's zoomed in on his face. And there's clearly a boot on the little boy's oh, this uh, is head my favorite too. and holding the boy to the ground. And the caption says, when the authoritarian government forces me to look at swimsuit models. But then the next photo is it zooms out and the boy is smiling and you can see that he has his arm up in the top of the boot and there's no foot connected to it. And he's holding the boot on his head. And it's <laughs> like, and it's basically, that's, that that's was my Jordan favorite Peterson. Too. Yeah. That, that is was my, my favorite, favorite too. One. You know, it's funny. I was thinking about, do I mention that one on this podcast? And I was like, I don't know if I could describe it accurately for an audio only listeners, but we'll, we'll retweet it, both of us, just so that everybody could see yeah. it. Well, and props really to uh, Wheels Wordsmith at Wheels Wordsmith. I, and I am in, I didn't even look at their feed. I, I have no idea. They could be a terrible person, but I, I want mean, them. I want, I don't meme. know what you call these people who know, like there are people out there who know the right memes for the right time. Mm. And I know certain companies have artists. people who They're work artists. There. I, if you are such a person, send me a message. That I want, I want to hire such person for lost debate. I, I would love just somebody who's really good at this. Who's yeah. just like, I know the right meme. Cause like, man, like you've got to be pretty organized to be like, Oh yeah, that's the kid with the boot situation. I would never <laughs> yeah. know to like, well, and you've got, you're not yeah. just organized. Like you've got to have sort of an incredible uh, mind for analogy. 
Yes. You yeah. Know? Totally. Uh, so, so if you're such a person, send me a message. I, I need a good meme lord or whatever we call these th- people. Director of memes. Um, yeah. Meme slinger. Meme strategist. Hey, it's Elise Hugh, host of TED Talks Daily. Sound familiar? Once in a century voter turnout. Once in a century pandemic. Old technology. Low budgets. Somehow democracy survives. What if the people with ideas to fix these problems actually had the resources to do it? The Audacious Project is catalyzing more than $900 million to fund changemakers who want to rescue our democracy. Follow TED Talks Daily to hear these ideas now. A big development in our house is that Bella, who's now 19 months old, she's gotten to the height and the strength where she can lift herself up on our blue uh, all form love seat, our, our sofa. And it's like her favorite little spot. She gets up there and she's so proud of herself. And then she like picks up a book and is like, daddy. So everybody officially now in the house, that's their favorite place to sit. Nice. Uh, I love my all form furniture. I have some in my office. I have some in my apartment. What I really love about it is how easy it is to put together. Like it's just a matter of minutes before you have everything functional and where you need it. I need to order some more because I'm about to move. So I'm really excited to pick out some new stuff. And if getting a sofa without trying it in a store sounds a little risky, you don't got to worry. You get 100 days to decide if you want to keep it. That's more than three months. And if you don't love it, they'll pick it up for free and give you a full refund. They even offer a forever warranty, literally forever. So to find your perfect sofa, check out allform.com slash majority54. And Allform is offering 20% off all orders for our listeners at allform.com slash majority54. Jason, I know that you don't you don't like to be gracious to the city of Buffalo, but I know that we're going to take our sports hats off for a second and and talk about the tragedy that happened over the weekend. Uh, obviously horrible. Uh, I think our listeners at this point are familiar with the facts, so I won't go through them. And I think like the reason why we bring this up is not only to just note how both remarkable this is in the sense that it's it's a tragedy where a, you know a lot of innocent life was lost in an explicitly racist attack, but also how not rare this is, like how often we have to talk about these things. And it's it's hard to put those two things together, to be like, it's important to stop as a society and say enough is enough, but also to know that if past is any guide, we face an uphill climb to do anything about this. Edie shared with us an article in Newsweek by Kalita Rahman, who went through the other like recent attacks that are attributable to, or at least where the the killer espoused white replacement theory, which is the same thing that was espoused by the terrorists in this case. So you've got the Pittsburgh synagogue shooting in 2018, where 11 people were killed. In this case, the killer espoused ideas that are associated with this replacement theory, including blaming a Jewish group for allowing, allowing invaders in that kill our people. The El Paso shooting was another one where uh, the killer had posted a manifesto on on 8chan where he had a bunch of white supremacist rhetoric and he railed against the, quote, Hispanic invasion of Texas, said he wanted to shoot as many Mexicans as possible. Then if you go to New Zealand, 2019, uh, the Christchurch mosque shootings, where it's it's a similar thing. Uh, it was an attack against Muslims and killed 51 worshipers at two mosques. I think in that case, live streamed it and, and said, as long as a white man still lives, they'll never conquer our lands. I mean, and then you've got the Buffalo shooting where this uh, shooter was live streaming it and had the number 14, he had a racial slur 
he had the N-word on, I think, the iron side of his rifle. And then he had uh, the number 14, which is a reference to a white supremacist slogan. In his manifesto, talked about replacers. So it's like these, this yeah. is, these are terrorist attacks that are invoking this very specific belief. Right. And, you know, I think there's always there's this big debate, I think an important debate about whether you even discuss the views of the person who perpetrates an attack. And, and I'll just explain why I think it's important for us to to dive in and talk about how threatening these views are. Number one is that this is majority 54. I'm not worried about our like the people who listen to this podcast being persuaded by these views. It's more important that we understand them and also connect the dots between the more extreme versions of this view that are unvarnished in the dark corners of the internet and then the more sanitized versions of these views, which make their way into mainstream news. And I think it's really important for us to understand that connection in order to combat it. That's why we mention it. Can I add also that, you know, nobody was saying when there were terrorist attacks inspired by ISIS, nobody was like, don't mention that these were followers by uh, followers of ISIS because right. that's helpful to ISIS. No, like we should talk about these as what they are. The, this is terrorism. After 9-11, we came to think that terrorism was exclusively enormous mass casualty events. But that's not true. If you look back at you know some of the attacks uh, post 9/11, but but a lot like almost all terrorist attacks pre 9/11 were you know killing a dozen or so people or or and if you look at the way um, Al Qaeda uh, executed terrorist attacks say in Kabul um, throughout our campaign in Afghanistan, the concept behind terrorism is exactly what they're espousing in these manifestos, which is to make everyone afraid of going about their life, right? Why do you go and you shoot people at a grocery store? You go and you to a black grocery store and you shoot black people? You do it because you want all black people in America to feel like they can't go about their life without fear. You know, it's the same thing, uh, lynching black people and, and, then, and then leaving those people out for everybody to see. Terrorism is about terrorizing the population more so even than it's about inflicting a lot of casualties. That's what this is. It's a terrorist movement and people who are pushing it, you know, even implicitly or even like in a polished bow tie wearing way are no different than people who in, you know, post 9-11 would have been espousing the same views as Al Qaeda, yeah. which we would not have tolerated. Well, and, you know, the bow tie is in reference to Tucker Carlson, who, among many figures on the right, and we're talking about multiple Fox News personalities, uh, Liz Cheney called out many of her colleagues in Congress, including uh, Lee Stefanik, who've been flirting with, if not explicitly espousing, a version of the replacement theory. Now, let's focus on Tucker Carlson, because I think this is the most high profile example of this, where he's saying, no, I'm just saying what the Democrats have been saying. But but let me tell you, let me show you what he's been saying. He he said, there's so many instances of him trafficking these ideas that it, we would be here forever if I explained all of them, but I'm just going to explain a few of them. Here's him, you know, on one occasion, he goes, the Democratic Party is trying to replace the current electorate, the voters now casting ballots with new people, more obedient voters from the third world, right? That's one example. He also uses this term legacy Americans, uh, which almost exclusively showed up in outlets like the Daily Stormer, like super right wing, crazy outlets before this. 
he'll be like, you know what? I'm saying this other thing. It resembles what Democrats say when they celebrate diversity. I'm just saying, hey, that's your explicit aim. You're trying to dilute the electorate, et cetera. That's different than what this manifesto is saying or whatever. And it would be one thing if Tucker Carlson was like this guy who has earned our trust, right? And he's like this intellectual who you're like, all right, that guy's in good faith trying to like separate out different ideas. But we're talking about a guy who we all know who he is, who's, you know, airs documentary saying that January 6th was an inside job and also who's you know had company with a lot of people who we should be suspicious of his head writer was this guy named Blake Neff um, who was eventually fired because it turned out that he was like spending significant amount of time on the actual crazy right-wing websites saying explicitly racist things and this is a guy who you know publicly claimed in an article in Dartmouth magazine that quote anything Carlson is reading off the teleprompter their first draft was written by me is a guy who is explicitly racist. Like, I don't have a lot of good faith to offer Tucker Carlson here in this discussion. But the reason we have to talk about this is like, he's not just high profile. He hosts a show in prime time on what is frequently the most popular cable news network in America. Like, right. he's their lead. Like, he's their greatest money maker. And, and so, like, he is the mainstream of, of the right. And, and he is beyond mainstreaming this stuff like and and what he does when and this is what people need to look out for is here's how he does it his his bank shot is he says i'm just saying what democrats have been saying and obviously i'm not going to stop saying it because they're saying it they've written books about it and monographs and endless number of speeches you know immigration will make this a more democratic country okay that's what they believe that was teddy kennedy's motive in passing the 1965 immigration law was to change the composition of the country. And I just think that that's anti-democratic. Here's what he's referencing. He's referencing, I assume, progressives who have cited demographic numbers and polling numbers to say like, hey, our messaging is very popular with black people. Our messaging is very popular, you know, some like our messaging on immigration can be very popular with the younger generation of the Latino population. Like they're doing exactly what every political analyst does, which is just looking at polls and trying to break down where people come down. And he's taking that and trying to turn that into the Democrats are actively trying to bring in people who are not currently American. So that which is a not true and b the exact definition of white replacement theory. Like he's the literally the only thing he has not done is say, I believe in white replacement theory. It's like if I went out and I went on a speaking tour and I talked about all of the of the great articles that have been written that are very skeptical of the idea that the world is round. And I walked people through those and I told people how there is a real effort to make all of us believe that the world is round. But I never said I am a flat earther. Like that's where he is. He right. is a white replacement theory promoter who just has never said, see, the whites are being replaced. Although I think he's probably said that. Yeah, there there is a difference between celebrating demographic change, and there are definitely members of the left who say things like, you know, it's going to be a majority X country soon or whatever, and they celebrate that. Which, which, but it's just a reading of trends. It's right. not 
And and we are and making also, this happen. You could also say you like that, right? Um, and sure. you could also say that's a good thing. That's different than saying there's a Jewish cabal that's pulling the strings to make that happen. It's different than saying that our immigration policy is premised on that electoral gain. These are just very different things. And you can actually be somebody who thinks the Great Replacement Theory is evil and also have issues with the way some other people on the left talk about those changes and how inclusive they are about those things. You could hold those beliefs simultaneously. You don't have to. But like, I think what he's trying to say is, oh, those are your only two choices. You could either be with me on this replacement theory or you could be with the other people who want to exclude you. Basically, he's speaking to white people here. He's saying, oh, those people, they're celebrating a world in which you lose your power. And the only two worlds that exist are the world where you lose your power or a world where we fight back. Uh, he wants that binary to exist. Well, and people are shocked. There's a lot of people that are just like, I can't believe that this is in the mainstream. But we shouldn't be shocked. We should be wary and we should be fighting back against it. And the reason we shouldn't be shocked is just look at the way Republicans have talked about our society and, and about race for the last 40 years, right? I mean, Affirmative action, like the entire effort to make you feel like you are less likely to get a job if you are white, like that, that is, that's just white replacement theory in action, that belief, right? Look at the way that they reacted to things like when President Obama had Henry Louis Gates in for a beer summit because of what happened with, I believe it was Cambridge police mistaking him. He's a professor mistaking him and thinking that it wasn't his house that he was entering. And so, you know, he tried to do a thing where he brought in the cop and he brought, you know, and look at the way people reacted to that then. They were like, oh, now we have a black president and we're going to have to hear about black stuff. Right. And, right. And, th and then every time you've ever heard and anybody listening to this has heard this, I think, has heard somebody say, well, you know, the thing is, President Obama actually made race relations worse in this country. Right. Yeah. Drives all me of, crazy. All of that stuff is white replacement theory. It's just when you call it white replacement theory, it sounds like scientists came up with it and that it, you know, you're, they're, they're just churching up just KKK racism. That's all it is. Hey listeners, our network wonder media network is releasing a true crime podcast. It's their first ever, and it's coming out next month. It's called I was never there. And it was selected to premiere at the 2022 Tribeca festival. It's the story of Marsha mud Ferber, a 47 year old mother of two who disappeared without a trace in 1988. 34 years later, Jamie and Karen Zellermeyer are going back to the land to figure out what happened. Join Jamie and Karen as they investigate the shocking disappearance of their close friend, Marsha, and trace her steps from suburban mom to radical hippie to drug dealing bar owner. Using Marsha's disappearance as a jumping off point, the mother-daughter duo take us on an intimate journey through the countercultural movements swirling through West Virginia in the 70s and 80s. Listen to the trailer of I Was Never There wherever you get your podcasts, and make sure you're subscribed to be the first to listen when the show's out on June 9th. Well, let's move on to uh, another depressing topic here. Let's talk about the formula shortage. And, you know, the background here is that, you know, what started with supply chain challenges and labor issues, which, you know, tightened the supply of baby formula, quickly got way worse when there was a formula recall following a bacterial infections stemming from uh, one major plant, uh, the Abbott Nutrition Factory in Michigan. 
And it looks like that factory is is on its way to being reopened. And there's all sorts of other stuff happening here. But this is a this is a major crisis, but it's it's becoming a political football, both because, you know, anything that happens that's bad in this country, the right salivates and likes to lay it on Biden's doorstep. Uh, I'm not sure what they would have wanted him to do to keep a factory open with bacterial infections. But, you know, we could talk about that. But also, you know, Governor Abbott has said the governor of Texas has, you know, called into question like pictures of, you know, pallets or whatever, of baby formula for kids and families who are in U.S. detention facilities on the border and basically saying they were, we're hoarding formula for the immigrants coming into this country, which is quite a a move in the middle of this crisis. So, Jason, what? Do, how do you see this playing out? And how do we talk about this? Like people who are both affected by it personally, but also are hearing all these claims. Well, first of all, I think it's important to acknowledge that this is just white replacement theory, right? It's, it's all it is. It's just, oh, the brown people get formula and we don't, right? Like, right. I mean, it's, it's literally, I mean, they're just trying to say like, Biden likes the brown people. He doesn't like you. Right. Right. Uh, so we have to recognize that for what it is. We also have to make sure that just like everything else that they argue in white replacement theory, that we can't dismiss it. It's a visceral argument. Like anybody who's ever had a baby that was hungry and had been like even just you like went out and you forgot to bring their food. Like it's a very upsetting feeling. I mean, so to imagine not being able to get the food and, and then, you know, it's not like you just, Oh, I'll just feed the baby something else. Like babies get in a routine, they eat what they eat, you know? And so it's very serious and potentially a very effective argument as well as a very serious problem. And one of the questions that people have asked is, well, why can't we just import a bunch of formula really quickly? And, you know, as fortune magazine and others have pointed out that as part of the U.S.-Mexico-Canada agreement that was negotiated by President Trump to replace the North American Free Trade Agreement, there's all these different duties and, and tariffs that are put in place on Canada, on Mexico, that basically closed off Canada as a source of infant formula. And, and the, the U.S. has imported a grand total of zero tons of baby formula from Canada, yet has shipped tons of domestic formula into Canada. Now, I can understand how at the time, you know, anything that says we're going to increase our exports and decrease our imports, like I'm not saying, oh, they should have seen this coming, but it's not as if it just happened, couldn't have been foreseen. Like there's actually a change that was put in place during the Trump administration that makes it extremely difficult to respond to something like this in a nimble way. Right. And it's one thing to put a tariff on a manufactured good coming from China that we don't need. It's another thing to put a tariff on something that we do need as a society that's coming from our port, like our neighbor to the north that we have a good relationship with. And our law allows our FDA inspectors to cross that border and inspect those plants. So there's really no safety argument whatsoever for why we couldn't import uh, formula into the U.S. And so I think that's one tool in our tool belt. So if people are trying to be productive here, that's that's number one. Number two is that these are monopolies. Abbott, the company at issue here, is 43% of the market share, and they're one of four major manufacturers of infant formula in this country. So this gets to the meatpacking uh, thing that we talked about a few months ago. Like, There's a lot of consolidation in the food industry and you know, obviously other industries as well. And so what I would be saying is, oh, Josh Holly, you're, you're Mr. Anti-Monopoly, you're the, you're the you know, trade buster or whatever, then you know, apply that standard here. And then there's this whole other issue here, which I don't even know what the politics of it are, but 
if you look at the nutritional program for uh, women, inf infants, and children, what we call WIC, there are a lot of bad incentives here where essentially the government's granting you know, contracts to one manufacturer at a time, and it's the states who are negotiating these, where they're creating mini monopolies in their states, which is creating all sorts of supply issues within the states. And it's obviously related to the fact that there's only four manufacturers to begin with. So this is like a huge problem. And so much of the formula that's being consumed are actually from WIC participants. Like the, the estimations vary from 27 to 68% of formula in this country are being used by WIC participants. So there's so much... So much could be done here. So when you when you put those three together, tariffs, monopolies, uh, reforming WIC, we can actually do something about this problem. But blaming people at the border is going to do nothing here, and it's only scapegoating the real bad actors here, and you know, placing at the feet of defenseless children and families. If you are a person who has not had access to baby formula during this, like I don't begrudge you at all for being upset about this like you don't have to consider the politics of anything i mean i get your, your baby's hungry like i'm not going to begrudge you but if you are a politician who's been actively out there acting as if we should take baby formula off the like internal inventory of detainment centers that are holding whole families of people and i don't know put it on grocery market shelves like come on like Correct me if I'm wrong, but the the babies that are in these holding centers, they're like pretty well in jail with their family. Like these people, it's not like these parents can just go out to the grocery store and pick up formula. Like, yep. this is the only food they have access to. So, I mean, it's it's just yeah. a kind of just a nasty thing to say. Yeah, it's also, I was having this conversation with somebody yesterday who is like really well-intentioned and was just like, hey, you know, they were like, it would be one thing if they, if they, you know, they were wasting formula or something. And I was like, hold on for a second. I was like, which version of this events would you rather have in a, in a version where we under order or over order? Because precisely ordering is never an option, right? So I'm like, I would be offended if there wasn't excess formula here. Like, you know, they're going to say, oh, there's, and the number's going to be in some absurd amount just because we're talking about a lot of people. And from what I understand, you go through a lot of formula in a short period of time. So they're going to be like, we wasted, and it's going to be some number that seems crazy. And then you're going to be like, wait a minute, how many people are at the border? And wouldn't you rather have a world where we have too much and not too little when it when these are people whose freedom is restricted and we're responsible for their livelihood and we're talking about children, you know, like, come on. Well, and I think the, the biggest point to take away is your point about monopolies, because if the whole concept of capitalism is to make sure that we meet the need, right, and that we don't have you know, the equivalent of bread lines that you have in a centrally planned economy like the Soviet Union was, well, then you can't have single or only two suppliers of vital goods of any kind, because then they may as well be the government trying to centrally plan what the demand is. And when something goes wrong, you don't have that thing anymore. I mean, so this is just all a really good argument for breaking up monopolies. As we look ahead, the former FDA commissioner, Peter Pitt says he projects that this will last for about six to 10 weeks. And so hopefully we're on the, the short end of that uh, and hopefully it gets a lot better really soon.
Well, Jason, we are recording this on Wednesday afternoon. It's the day after Election Day across the country in a bunch of states, a bunch of primaries, including North Carolina and Pennsylvania. And the Senate race uh, in Pennsylvania, John Fetterman is the nominee for Pennsylvania Senate, uh, or, you know, I think a, about a week after he had a stroke or a couple of days after he had a stroke. So wishing him all the best and, and, and a speedy recovery. And on the Republican side, you had a few candidates who were in the mix, but it looks like now David McCormick, a former hedge fund executive, is neck and neck, slightly ahead at the moment, with Dr. Oz, the celebrity surgeon. And this appears to be heading for a recount. That's one big data point. The second is D Doug Mastriano, who's a far-right candidate, won the GOP nomination for governor in a landslide. This is a man who attended the January 6th rally and has called for decertifying the results of the 2020 election. And then in one other notable race in, in North Carolina, Ted Budd uh, won the North Carolina nomination for Senate there. And he is also somebody who has questioned the results of the last election. And Oz and McCormick both have you know the same kind of views where they're skeptical. They're sort of truthers on this kind of stuff. So it seems like we have a trend here. Well, in Pennsylvania, I mean, I think it's mostly, uh, I, I like the way it looks. I mean, people need to remember that, as James Carville famously said, Pennsylvania is Pittsburgh and Philadelphia with Alabama in between. And, and so if people are wondering how they get these extreme nominees on the Republican side occasionally, that's how. And, you know, John Fetterman, I think, has a very good shot in this Senate race. It's going to be a tough race, no doubt about it. It's a midterm where Democrats aren't at the zenith of our popularity, but I think he's well positioned. He was actually, you know, we were talking about having him on the show today and I had reached out to him and he was going to do it. And then then two days later, we found out that he he'd had a stroke. And I think it was shortly after we had communicated with him. So we are hoping to be able to work that out with John uh, at some point during the run up to this race in November. And then on top of that, you've got uh, Josh Shapiro, the pretty popular attorney general of Pennsylvania running uh, for governor. So I feel I'm kind of bullish on both of those races. But I think it's important to to realize, like, just because they have these extreme nominees, that really doesn't mean that much, particularly in a Senate race, because like in a governor's race, I think it does. It, it means a lot more because in a governor's race, people are like, this person's going to be like in charge of stuff. But the Senate races have become almost like parliamentary elections in the sense that people are like, well, it's really just math. Do I want Republican? I mean, it's kind of just R versus D. So it's hard, believe me, to move the needle in that case in a Senate race. But I one thing, just to be petty for a second, this guy, Dr. Oz, tweeted this thing out the other day that is one of the oddest lies I've ever seen, which is he claimed that he is, uh, as a surgeon, had hundreds of thousands of patients. And I just thought, well, what a weird thing to make up. Like, that's just. Yeah, like, I imagine the math on that doesn't check out, especially when you're appearing on Oprah all the time. Right. It's hard to see hundreds of thousands of patients for anybody, never mind a celebrity surgeon. Yeah, yeah. I just thought, like, you know, it, you're a surgeon. Like, that's impressive enough. Like, right. I mean, you, you like, what is that? Like, what an interesting proclivity toward lying that that guy clearly has that he that he just very Trump like he just has to automatically inflate things. Because like, if you right. were like, I've had hundreds of patients, I'd be like, 
Well, I mean, that's pretty impressive. You're a surgeon right. and you've had hundreds. Like, you right. you'd have hundreds of thousands. Honestly, if you had dozens of patients, Jason, uh, yeah. I'd be impressed. I'd be, I'd be super like, impressed. that's pretty yeah. good. You know, like yeah. if you've had 10, I'm like, yeah. well, that's pretty good. Like 10 people have let you cut them open and fix them. Like, right. I'm impressed by that. Uh, anyway, so just an odd tell, I think. Well, I've got to run to, to scrub out, scrub in for my own surgery here. You know, I'm about to do <laughs> yeah. my, I'm about to conduct my first one here. But it, it looks like our democracy is going to need a, an open heart surgery if any of these, if a lot of these people win. So let's let's keep hustling out there, people. Like I know that it feels like the odds are stacked against us, but you know, we you, a lot can change in a short period of time. But also, we've got to do everything we can because every one of these lunatics that we keep out of office. Uh, is going to be a win here. And I think a lot of these races are going to be super close. The Democratic nominee uh, for the Senate in North Carolina, by the way, is Sherry Beasley, who is former Chief Justice of the North Carolina Supreme Court. I actually remember meeting her uh, once when I was in North Carolina giving a speech back when I was doing that sort of thing in, in politics all the time and and being really impressed with her. Um, so uh, I, I, there's a lot to be excited about there as well. I and I'm going to keep doing this until we launch this book uh, for grab or I'm going to just again plug that Invisible Storm, a soldier's memoir of politics and PTSD uh, is coming out July 5th and, and that all my royalties are going to combat veteran suicide and veteran homelessness at Veterans Community Project. But what I really want the listeners to know is that this is the last week to be part of the launch team. So if you and to be part of the launch team, we, all you got to do is pre-order a copy of the book pre-order the hardcover, and then uh, you sign up at jasoncander.com slash launch team. And there's options as to how involved you want to be. It could just be, hey, I'll pre-order the book. I might write a review. It's, hey, I'll pre-order the book pre-order the book and then I will write a review when it launches. Or it's like, hey, I can do more. Here are these other things I can do to help get the word of the book out. Whatever it is, whatever you're interested in, we're doing this for another week that you can sign up. And if you do at jasoncanner.com slash launch team, not only will you get the book when it comes to you, uh, July 5th, when it comes out, but you will get a digital copy next week that you can read. So before anybody else, so we're talking like six weeks before the book comes out, uh, you can read it. So jasoncanner.com slash launch team. All right, leave us a voicemail at 508-687-2589, or you can email us at m54 at wondermedianetwork.com. Send us who you've been talking to for our Pledge to Persuade campaign. Have you had any successes, failures? Let's talk about it. Tell us about it so we can talk about it. I'm at Jason Kander on Instagram and Twitter. Ravi is at Ravi M. Gupta on Twitter and Instagram. And our show is at Majority54 on Twitter. Remember, we all have a platform. Make sure to use yours today. Majority 54 is a Wonder Media Network production. It's produced by Grace Lynch, Edie Allard, and Adesua Agmanayo. Theme music provided by Kemet Coleman, and special thanks to Diana Kander. Hi, listeners. It's Robbie with a question for you. What if instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're on the cusp of a better world? For that answer, I recommend listening to the What Could Go Right podcast. Each week, Progress Network founders Zachary Carabell and Executive Director Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from elections to climate change, and make the case for a brighter future with guests like Harvard Professor Arthur C. Brooks and California State Senator Robert Hertzberg. Progress is on the way. Find out on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts.